So this time of year is a very special one. This time of the winter solstice, and yesterday was the beginning of Hanukkah. We have the celebration of Christmas in two days, even though scholars say Jesus was probably born in April. <laughs> but they maybe were competing with the pagans. <coughs> Don't know. And we have Kwanzaa, and we have uh, almost all cultures in the Northern Hemisphere gave special ceremonies at this time. There's something about the mystery of how we have the greatest darkness and then light comes again. So I want to explore themes related to the winter solstice, to uh, this time of year, and talk about uh, going into the darkness, and in fact, uh, embracing the darkness, and inviting the light. You know, that this play of darkness and light, and weave that theme very relevant for our time right now into ways that we can have guidance based on those themes for our, for our practice, for our practice of cultivating mindfulness, wisdom, kind heart, skillful action. This is a short poem by John Updike. He says, the days are short, the sun a spark hung thin between the dark and dark. Again, so almost all indigenous traditions had some kind of uh, recognition of this time. So they, they've uh, determined that the stones, for example, at Stonehenge are placed so as to connect with the sunset of the winter solstice. We have these other holidays like Hanukkah pointing to the way that the uh, the light continued, as you know, the story for eight days, even when there was only supposedly enough oil for one day. So we could take that as a teaching about how there can be light even when we think there is only darkness. And yet, uh, Maybe it's a testimony to the nature of society. Often at this time in our society, uh, rather than being somewhat like the earth and stopping, we get crazy. Anyone here notice craziness in your own life? There's a great clarification of this from my friend and colleague, uh, Diana Winston who actually wrote this like in 2003, so I think it's gotten 
worse, but this is, uh, this is about the speediness of the culture. Contemporary America, we love fast things, fast cars, fast meals, microwaves, one night stands, instant credit, overnight express, cable modems, amphetamines, pizza delivery, make everything. I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, eat ice cream, make music, cook, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk, my God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out. I'm running fast and furiously. And I want it to stop. Ouch, it's painful. Why won't it stop? Can't you make it stop? My God, what's wrong with this country? Have we all gone crazy? Are we insane? We've lost touch. We've lost touch. We've got to stop this endless running about. All I want to do is slow down, just crawl into bed and rock myself to sleep. Not this craziness, not this crazy running about. I'm so tired. Please, somebody, you have got to help me stop. Anyone relate to that? <laughs> yeah. So what I'm going to really point to are how when we look at the times there and the way the earth is, is really the suggestion of seeing if we can find some time to slow down, stop the input, and, and listen. Listen inwardly, listen outwardly, listen to the earth, listen to really our being. In so many of these cultures, these ceremonies were about listening deeply at this time to know, to kind of uh, stop for a while and get a sense of what comes next or what the deeper, more organic impulses are from one's own, own being. Having a period of... Uh, really of uh, withdrawal. And I think of the British historian Toynbee said that the mark of cultural creativity, and I think we could also think about the creativity of our own lives, is having cycles of withdrawal and return. Can we have those cycles where we get some distance from everything. And we can do that even while knowing that there are um, major crises in the world. You know, we can, we, in a way, even if we, you know, I hope many of us really want to respond to the various crises, uh, whether we think of climate issues or political polarization or economic inequality or the rise of xenophobia, racism, and so forth. And it wasn't like there wasn't any before it rose. Right. And whatever we uh, really are drawn to, I, I was thinking about this because in the last few months, uh, I, I taught in Charlottesville. Right. I went to the place where they had that tiki parade, right, with the torches, right? And I saw the, they still have statues there of Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee and uh, the soldier that's usually called Johnny Reb, still right there, you know, right there. And I also, in the last uh, months, made a trip. Uh, I, I did some teaching in Israel and made uh, a trip to the West Bank also, and just was really, uh, you know, I mean, it was the third time I'd gone there, but just really uh, connected. So with, uh, you know, the 
suffering and injustice that's there. And, and so we can actually have this time of going within and reflecting uh, even though we know about the crisis. So I think that, you know, I think of the life of Gandhi, for example, at a, at a very pivotal moment in the uh, Indian independence movement uh, uh, when people were wanting action and Gandhi said, I'm not sure what to do now. And he just sat on his uh, porch basically for six weeks looking over the river in his community. And he just sat there and he said, I don't know what to do and I want to wait for the answer. And he sat there for six weeks and you know, people came and said, hey, we have to do something. Tell us what to do, you're Gandhi. He said, I will just stay here. And he sat quietly for six weeks and then he said, now I know what to do. After six weeks of silence, he said, we will march to the sea. Some of you may remember the film on Gandhi. We will march to the sea and we will make salt in violation of the British prohibition on anyone but the British making salt. Crazy, right? And he marched, they marched to the sea and I think they started from their community and they had a few hundred people and by the time they reached the sea they had like 15,000 or more people. And it actually, according to historians, it led to you know, massive civil disobedience and the British responded very brutally. And it was often really showing the brutality and it really, according to many, it was the turning point of the Indian independence movement, certainly in the eyes of many in the world. And it came out of him sitting silently and not knowing. So we can do that for periods of time even, even if we're drawn to take care of things in certain ways, act and so forth. This is from uh, Zen teacher John Tarrant. The ancient basis of spiritual practice is always stillness and silence. We may sit under a tree, cross-legged in a quiet room, or by the fire, the important thing is that we turn towards an intense inwardness. There silence comes to us out of the dawn of the world from the earliest band gathered on the sandstone cliffs looking for the sun to rise, from the hunter waiting in the spirifex grass. And so I know for myself, at this time of year, maybe, uh, 30 times in the last 40 years I've had a period of silence over around the time of the solstice and the New Year's and it's very precious and it's really helped to guide the next cycle. So that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to be exploring, right? How to, how to do that and how to, uh, how to really honor the earth and this time of year. So I want to talk really about five ways that we relate to the darkness and light. The first is 
that we can really, like the earth, uh, take the darkness in terms of stopping, that we, we open to the darkness as like the earth stopping, becoming still. That's the first. The second will be being able to be with darkness as difficulty, right? So another meaning of darkness, some of them are, some of the understandings of darkness are more positive, some point to difficulty. So the second aspect of darkness is being with difficulty. If we learn to be with the dark, we learn to be with difficulty. The third kind of metaphor of darkness is being with the darkness as not knowing. And then the fourth is seeing how the darkness, like the earth, can be, can be generative, fertile, can lead places. So the difficulties, the not knowing, the stopping, much like the earth, uh, can lead to um, new growth. And also, the, and then the fifth one is about the, the way that darkness leads to light. So that's what I want to explore and, and read some poems and, and have some fun. And again, so you can see that I'm, sometimes people use the word dark exclusively as negative, which of course is problematic and can be, you know, if we, if we only do that, that can be connected with sort of even with racism, right? So, so I'm trying to use darkness in, in both ways. And it's something that, you know, uh, we're not, often not so comfortable with darkness. We like the light on, you know, I remember uh, studying with the great Thai teacher, Achan Cha. And when he first came to the U.S., he was from Thailand. as a teacher of Jack Kornfield and others. I remember uh, studying with him some and his first trip to the U.S. And, he's, and he remarked about how many lights there were. And he says, more lights outside, less light inside. Interesting, right? Interesting, that's what, he, that's what he observed. This is a poem from Wendell Berry. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. To know the dark, go dark. So first, uh, how do we, how do we, with our our lives in the next period, uh, be like the earth in terms of stopping and being still? And again, we might say, "Let me try to find a day, two days, a half day, and do nothing, and listen, and do that which is nourishing to me." again, can be very, very precious to give, have some stopping, some silence, you know, the, the proverbial unplugging. Can you, do we have, uh, can we find a day in the next, let's say, uh, 10 days, or two days, or more, where we stop? This is interesting. This is about what actually happens with the earth. 
when it stops. Photosynthesis slows, respiration slows, this is the plants. Growth slow, stops, growth stops. Plants use winter dormancy to keep their houses in order. That's what we're suggesting. Plants use winter dormancy to keep their houses in order. This dormancy is much more than a period of suspending animation. It's part survival mechanism, part housekeeping, exercise, all meant to help plants gear up for warmer days ahead. So the stopping is necessary for the future growing. And again, something that we often miss in our culture. I remember when I was, uh, I did uh, university teaching for like seven years. And uh, then it was a little too much and I moved to California. But I remember when I was doing that, I always tried to tell people at the end of a semester, take a break, because most people just go from one thing to another. Take a break, reflect. And that's what, again, that's what this is pointing to. How can we, how can we really stop? And this is again something that we learn in the meditation. We learn to stop and we learn to have the mind, the active mind slow down. One of the great benefits of meditation is that it's possible to have the mind get quiet and almost to operate from different parts of the mind let material that's deeper come to the surface. It can't be there when we're just active with the mind. So we have these wonderful tools to learn how to stop there being so much thinking. And I know this was, when I was first learning meditation, I actually, I was a student, and when I started, I actually was coming from spending a year in Germany, and I didn't know what country I wanted to live in, whether I wanted to stay in Germany for a little while more or come back to the US. And so I would, my meditations consisted of in uh, Germany, United States, Germany, United States, in, out, and then kind of Germany, United States for like half an hour. And then, oh, in, out. So, and but over time, over my first month when I was first learning meditation, after one month, I knew what country I wanted to live in. United States won. And I also learned how to uh, observe my mind a lot better. And it becomes possible really to move towards uh, the mind being still at will without trying too hard with enough practice. And of course we use thinking for what it's valuable for, but um, you know, it's a little bit overrated. That's my conclusion. Very important, but a little overrated. I think, uh, I think, I think about uh, um, 10 or 20% of the amount I did when I first started meditating, much better quality. Because, you know, I think they've shown in some, I think it was Stanford studies, they'd show 98% uh, of the thoughts we have are repeats. Notice that? 
Anyway, so we learn, we learn how to stop through our meditation. And we do that partly through silence, through minimizing input. So again, it can be wonderful to find a day or two, minimize input, and just see what's there. Maybe the first time do it for three hours or do it for six hours, not too long. Take a walk, you know, or maybe even listen to music, do some meditation. And, and listen and, and let, the, let the mind open up like that. And the, the deeper levels of our being start to come forward. And again, those of you who've been practicing know this, that when we're quiet, things come. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's unconscious material. Sometimes it's very beautiful material comes. But as we, as we stop and are quiet, we start touching deeper parts of our own being. You know, I know when I was first meditating, I really some I discovered uh, what we call sometimes intuition, or my you know the sense of what the Quakers call the still, was it the still small voice? Was that it, or the still quiet voice? Right, and that requires some quiet. Uh, this is from the great uh, Christian contemplative. Uh, Thomas Merton. He said, the inner self is precisely that self which cannot be tricked or manipulated by anyone. The inner self is like a very shy, wild animal that never appears at all whenever an alien presence is at hand and comes out only when all is perfectly peaceful in silence, when it is untroubled and alone. And so that stopping, like the earth, permits uh, learning permits things to come up. The second sense of being with the darkness that I want to explore is uh, being with the darkness as difficult. And this is really also a fundamental part of our practice. And I, w- I would say one of the uh, glories of our practice is to be more skillful and responsive when we have challenging thoughts or emotions, difficult states. And similarly, we can also be with others uh, more skillfully, more compassionately when they are having difficulties. And I think we know that a lot of our conditioning is to not want to be with what's unpleasant. Do we know that? We want to be with what's pleasant. There's a cartoon, which is one of my favorites, which shows a young meditation practitioner sitting very diligently and saying, today I will be in the present moment. Unless the present moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. So that, that can be generalized, right? <laughs> that can be generalized. And so part really, in some ways, right at the center of practice is learning to be what we call non-reactive, learning to be with the unpleasant without immediately wanting to get rid of it, and also learning to be with the pleasant without immediately grabbing hold of it or trying to have it stay or have it be more. And this goes against our conditioning. 
But this is the heart of the practice. And you know, my, my favorite way that this is taught is I think uh, a clearer way, in my view, than this core teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which is, you know, as you know, it's right at the center of the teachings of the Buddha. And there's another teaching which is a little bit less well known called the teaching of the two arrows. And this is the teaching which really brings this point out in a very, very clear way. And so this is right at the center of being with the dark as difficult, or being with the difficult. Here's the teaching. So the Buddha was hanging out with a bunch of practitioners, and as sometimes happened when he was hanging out, he would ask them questions. And very commonly, they wouldn't have answers to his questions, so he would answer his own questions. This was kind of his teaching style. And so he asked them, everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. How does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? We could stay the whole rest of the time with that. It's a, it's a big one. And so they didn't answer, and he more or less said this. Yes, everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. And he was particularly in the text uh, talking about unpleasant physical experiences, but we can generalize and talk about different kinds of unpleasant experiences. And so we may have unpleasant physical experiences. We may have unpleasant emotional experiences, certain difficult emotions. We can have difficult interactions with others that are unpleasant. We can be treated unfairly or unjustly, a form of unpleasant experiences. And in that, everyone's the same. Whether you're the Buddha or have just learned meditation for the first time this evening, it's the same for everyone. In fact, the Buddha, in his, when he was older, it's reported that he had a bad back and had headaches. And so everyone's the same there. Where the difference is, is in what we do with the unpleasant. How we respond, we might say. And so if we are not mindful and not wise, what do we do when something unpleasant occurs? We immediately try to push it away, get rid of it. And sometimes this is wise, and sometimes it's not. And I'll come back to that point. But the typical response, and you may have noticed this if you had an unpleasant thought in the meditation. How many of you had an unpleasant thought and just noticed yourself saying, get out of here, or something like that? Or how about an unpleasant physical sensation and just tried to say, why is this happening, or whatever, right? And so, we might try to get rid of an unpleasant sensation by sometimes by tensing in the body. And um, again, sometimes it's wise. You stick your hand in a, uh, a flame. It's wise just to have the hand out. But it actually is not always so wise to do this with some types of physical, physically unpleasant experiences or emotionally unpleasant. And that's what this gets at. So, for example, uh, the first area where mindfulness was taught in a medical setting 
was by John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical School when he taught uh, people with chronic pain how to be mindful. What they have found is that about 80% um, of the form of chronic pain in some forms of chronic pain isn't the original stimulation, but it's the tensing around the stimulation. Right? So if you can teach people to just be with the original stimulation, which is not pleasant, you can reduce 80%. The Buddha talked about that original unpleasant experience being like the first arrow. He called it the first arrow. And he said what we tend to do when there's the first arrow is we tend to shoot a second arrow as if that would help. So we tense around the sensation and thereby, in many cases, increase our pain by five times. It's not necessary. We see that much more evidently with emotions, right? That's really obvious there. I have a difficult emotion. Maybe something difficult has happened and I'm uh, upset and I might uh, blame myself and get down on myself for the next three days. I might have a difficult interaction with a friend or a partner and I might uh, blame myself, blame the other person. It can last for three hours or three days or three years, right? That would be the second arrow. Something unpleasant happens, I react, I try to push it away, being judgmental, doing it physically, uh, usually by thoughts in my mind, by narratives. Right? Someone says something nasty to me, and if I'm shooting the second arrow, I say something nasty right back. Right? You can see where this is going, that if we can learn to be present with the first arrow, we might not shoot the second arrow. There's a cartoon that from the New Yorker that goes like this. It shows a woman sitting on a couch and in front of her is someone who looks like a police officer. And then behind the couch, there's someone who looks like a detective with a notebook. Also behind the couch, there seems to be a body with the legs sticking up. And the cartoon says, I misspoke, he misheard, shots rang out. <laughs> but anyone relate to that? <laughs> That's like, uh, see the unpleasant situation is the first arrow and the uh, reaction is the second arrow. We're trying to push it away, we do that by being judgmental, by narratives, physically, all sorts of ways, right? Is that familiar? all sorts of ways we do that. And you look at the conflicts in the world and a good number of them are people shooting second arrows at each other. Very, very common. People, you know, one side has had pain, we shoot you, I shoot the second arrow at you. Then you've had pain, you shoot the second arrow at me. A lot of conflicts are like that. Is that familiar? So what the Buddha's teaching here, I think this is right at the core of the teaching, is that we don't have to be in that uh, treadmill. We can actually 
respond to the unpleasant in a different way. Not easy, right? Not easy. But this is a lot of what we do in our mindfulness. We train to be present with the unpleasant. I have an unpleasant emotion. I stay with it. I notice my tendencies in my mind, maybe to blame or judge myself or another. I notice my reactivity with something unpleasant physically. So that's some of the training we do, right? We don't cut this so much in the uh, Spirit Rock promotional material. Come to Spirit Rock. Be with unpleasant experiences. (laughs) And learn how to be more skillful with unpleasant emotional, physical experiences. We don't say that, but actually this is right at the center of our practice. Can you see that? You also can see, I I like to make the connection, that the work of um, Gandhi and King to develop nonviolence is exactly the same teaching. We have received negativity, pain, oppression. We will respond very firmly, but we will respond essentially by uh, careful action and love. We will respond to the unpleasant, not by passing on the pain. So it's also a uh, whole mode of social action very close to this teaching. Sometimes this is expressed as the first arrow is understood as pain and the second arrow is called suffering, making a distinction. And we sometimes say pain is a given, suffering is an option. I, I teach in Kentucky every year and I met someone who works at hospice and she told me about a woman who was a double amputee in hospice who had that sign at the foot of her bed. Pain is a given, suffering is an option. Imagine that. So just a few further words about that. Uh, in terms of being with what's difficult or unpleasant, I think very crucial is to be mindful that something difficult or unpleasant is happening. But it's also very crucial to, I like to say, to know the level of intensity of what's difficult and know whether it's workable. What we're looking for are being able to be with the unpleasant when it's in the workable range. Sometimes it's too much for us, then it's not skillful to be with it then it's actually skillful to move away from it. And so I like to use like the Olympic divers scale of one to 10 and say, when you have something difficult or unpleasant and it's an eight or nine or 10, it's actually wise to not be with it, come back to balance. You know, if it's something emotional, talk with a friend, take a walk, do something that brings you back to balance. So where we can be with the first arrow It's when it's in the workable range and we can be mindful and present with it. So that's a really crucial sort of qualification of what I'm saying. So I'm not saying just be with anything difficult, just say, take me. We want to really know whether it's workable or not, because when it's not workable, we can't really be mindful and explore it and investigate it. But when it's in the workable range, then we can bring our awareness and 
we can also, um, you know, if we're being with, you know, if we're going through a difficult stretch, it's really helpful to uh, also bring in what we call the heart practices, kindness, loving kindness, compassion, as a compliment. If we have, you know, sometimes we go through, sometimes we go through a difficult stretch. I won't ask for a show of hands for right for right now. But it can be a difficult stretch. In fact, the holidays are sometimes difficult, right? The, uh, the family dynamics are challenging. So this is a really important training, I think, for our times. You know, I was talking about the larger issues, the systemic crises that uh, people who want to help with those issues really have to be able to be able to be balanced when things are difficult. And so the trainings that we do on an inner level are really, really crucial for anyone who wants to help the world. Because we're going to need people who are really able to be with ups and downs, be with difficulties without reacting, and have have that training. Can you see that? That's really crucial. So if you want to, that's where I think what's really being called for is this balance of inner and outer training. You know, train yourselves in the inner things because we have to be there for the duration, for the kind of for the long haul and have that capacity with what's difficult. I was thinking of, you know, probably a lot of you know Greta Thunberg, right? What's the time person of the year, right? Pretty amazing. And you probably know that before she became active, she went through a very difficult period where she learned about climate change, I think she said at age nine. And she went through like, what, two years of depression? I think where she could hardly do anything. But she was able to be with it. And she has um, a kind of resilience. And I think you'll find that in the lives of people who actually can really participate uh, in the world very fully and have that ability to be with with the difficult. So the third way of being with the dark is to be with with not knowing. And be with, kind of be with uh, situations when you don't know exactly what to do. Have a quality of openness. And in many spiritual traditions, one of the core qualities that's emphasized is listening. You know, I don't know if you've seen the great Tibetan Yogi Milarepa. If you have, I have an image at home in my living room, uh, kind of a woodblock print of him just having his hand to his ear, listening. That's his core spiritual practice, listening to the world. And some of you know also uh, Kuan Yin, who is the figure, what we call the Bodhisattva of Compassion, is also named as she who hears the cries of the world. She's a listener. She listens and then she responds. And so this is really something also to develop during a quiet time, during a time over the New Year's maybe, or in the next days if we have quiet time. It's just to listen for what wants to move in us. There's something, you know, I I find this uh, doing retreats that it's so often 
that I, that I have to stop so much happening so I can listen for what wants to move in me, what's my next step, that we have to go beneath the, what, the, the clutter, right? And really be able to listen. We need, we need to stop for that. And then we can listen. And often we can listen with the, with the un, listen to the unresolved parts of ourselves. And it's really important that we just listen without trying to make anything happen. You know, if you actually have a few days and you have a significant unresolved issue. Does anyone have a significant unresolved issue? <laughs> Raise your hand. Okay. How about a moderate unresolved issue? Okay. And so what's really important, I think, if you take some quiet time, is to not immediately try to solve the issue. You know, if you have thoughts happening about that, say, at the end of my, you know, one day, two days, three days, then I'll direct my attention to my unresolved issue, but along the way, not at all. That actually is helpful. Some of you know, maybe know this, uh, these lines from the poet Rilke. Uh, this is from a, a book called Letters to a Young Poet. Rilke was an old poet when he wrote this. He was 29 years old. He was writing to a 21-year-old. And he said this, have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books written in a foreign language. Do not now look for the answers. They cannot now be given to you because you could not live them. It is a question of experiencing everything. At present, you need to live the questions. Perhaps you will gradually, without even noticing it, find yourself experiencing the answer some distant day. So staying with the unknowing, staying with the not knowing what the next step is. There's a beautiful line from uh, uh, the Catholic mystic St. John of the Cross who wrote uh, a famous uh, text called The Dark Night of the Soul, which I'm going to be teaching on next year. A very powerful area. He said, this is in Christian language, the soul walks to God through human unknowing. The soul walks to God through human unknowing. And so the, the fourth area is that being in the darkness can generate uh, light, can generate what is, can generate growth, can be fertile. That in a sense, you know, if we would imitate the earth, we would go through a cycle of stopping and then in a sense uh, being reborn again. That's really what this time is about. And again, when I'm, when I'm encouraging. And this takes a certain amount of faith, doesn't it? You know, you're in a difficult time. I'm in a difficult time. Can I stay with it and still have faith that there might be something 
positive that comes out of the difficulty, out of uh, the dark time, so to speak. Can I be with not knowing and trust that this is going in a good direction? When we've stayed with this process many, many times, we have more faith. But a lot of us, we, want, we, don't, we don't like not knowing, right? I want to know. Right now. Immediately. I'll look it up on Google if I don't know. There probably is a website where you can answer your spiritual answers. Maybe. So I was thinking also of uh, Ramdas who uh, I studied with a number of times. And I remember meeting him when I was in college. I was like 20 years old, and I didn't know anything about spirituality, really. My parents were kind of agnostics, and they had uh, rebelled against Judaism when they were like teenagers. Particularly my mom. She, I think she, she said she, um, found her father's uh, books. He had like the Harvard classics, which was this, all these famous books. And she read when she was nine years old, she read the philosopher Schopenhauer, who didn't think highly of religion. And so she soured on religion. And um, so I, had, I didn't have much religion. I was kind of raised more to be an activist and be interested in social justice. And that's what I primarily did in college. And then this guy Ramdas came, I think, I don't know if he was called that at the time, but he came to the college where I was and no one knew who he was. And he just hung out. And how many people know Ramdas? Know who he is? And how many people don't? Uh, yeah, look him up uh, on the web, look him up on YouTube. Right? Really, some, he's a beautiful man. And he had a stroke the last. Uh, 20 plus years. And he died, what, uh, yesterday, right? Huh? Yeah. What? He died, he died, yeah. He died uh, yesterday. I think at the age, what was it, uh, 88, you know. And so I was in college, and he came and he just, he just hung out in a room. And there was like a little poster that said, come talk with, I think, he probably was called Ramdas, I, I forget. And I didn't know anything about it. And there were like 12 people there. And I just hung out there and I didn't know what was going on. There was a quality of not knowing, but something was calling me. I was like, I would hang out. He would, he would just talk for like three or four hours at a time. And I was just hanging out there and something was drawing me because he did it for four days in a row. And I just kept on going back. And at the end of four days, I didn't know what would happen, what had happened, but something was drawing me. It was interesting. It was a, a quality of not knowing. I thought of that in relation to Ramdas, that quality of not knowing, because I didn't know that something was calling, but I had some openness at least, right? Um, and I don't think he called it spirituality. He just talked, and something was really interesting. And so uh, the darkness can really and then not knowing can really open us up. There can be some kind of learning, just like the earth. This is uh, Rumi 
Some nights stay up till dawn, as the moon sometimes does for the sun. Be a, be a full bucket pulled up by the dark way of a well, then lifted out into the light. And I was also thinking of my father, uh, Simon, uh, was blind the last 35 years of his life. Uh, probably he was a scientist, and was probably from experiments done where there was, the, there was not good supervision of the chemicals. This was a government organization, and he, that probably led to his blindness. Uh, there was unsupervised uh, experiments with chemicals for the uh, but he didn't really have bitterness. And actually, the la in his blindness, I could really see his heart open. Something very mysterious, you know. And, and that's, again, in many cultures we have the blind or the wise. Right? In many, many cultures. There's not an outer seeing, but there's an inner seeing. I could see that with my father developing, that the darkness could be generative in that way. And then lastly, kind of in a parallel way, the darkness itself leads to light. That as we stay with, as we stop, as we are with difficulty, as we uh, are with not knowing, these can all lead to uh, insight, uh, learning, and growth, and, uh, and light in a sense. Uh, another little poem from Roka. One moment your life is a stone in you, and the next moment is it, it is a star. Right? One moment a stone, dense, dark, the next moment a light. This is from uh, Hafez, the, also the, the Persian poet. I wish I could show you, when you were lonely or in the darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. And again, if you look to uh, St. John of the Cross, the same thing. You stay in the darkness and eventually light opens up. You know, and whether it's the light of an insight or an intuition or a sense of, I know what my next step is, or just the resolution of an issue. That's what we're looking for. That's what can be the fruit of uh, a being with the darkness. summarizing that there's, there's a lot of paradox with darkness and light that we we uh, we go into the dark in order to see better right we stop in order to move we're with the difficult so that we can come to more ease we come to knowing by being with the unknown 
that there is a light inside the dark and there's dark inside the light. And that we can really take it as a practice to, especially at this time, embrace the dark and be with the light. Uh, here's, I'll, I'll close with this. This is uh, a poem from uh, Pablo Neruda from Chile. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. So that's a summary of my talk. <laughs> so, thank you. Maybe just take a moment just to have a moment of silence and see was there something that resonated. And maybe there are some intentions that come out of listening to the talk. Just just for yourself. See see if there is something like that. And also see whether there's any uh, question you have or reflection or maybe a short story to tell. Any way you'd like to join in and we have some time for sharing and discussion. or thoughts or questions and again we'll have uh, two of our friends I think David and Helga will have the uh, mics we want to use the mic if you want to ask something share something again related to the talk or something sparked or really anything that's there for you yeah Hi. Um, I just wanted to see if you had any advice on a little closer. Yeah. Advice on um, getting grounded in the moment that first arrow comes your way. After that first arrow comes your uh, way. How to be like, yeah. get grounded in that moment. Yeah. Because it's happening real fast. Yeah, things happening fast. How to be grounded in the moment after the first arrow. This again it's right at the center of our practice really. Um the first is, I think mindfulness is really the starting point. It's, it's knowing that the first arrow is there. You know, where we can notice, you know, uh, or just know it's, oh, that didn't feel good. Or, you know, some of you may know, I, ever, uh, I have a, a lot of people, sometimes in groups, if someone says something, you can do this with friends, someone says something 
that doesn't feel good, you can say, ouch. Which when I first heard it, I thought it was cute, you know. But it actually is exactly following this teaching. It's mindfulness, that hurt, that didn't feel good. You say, ouch, rather than, why did you say that, right? And so first is mindfulness, just knowing that the first arrow is there, that there's something difficult or unpleasant. And then I think it's also, uh, try to have an intuitive sense of where on the scale of one to 10 it is. Because if it's a nine or a 10, the best thing to do is to almost like withdraw from the situation and try to come back to balance. So if it's with a friend who said something and you feel like I'm really, really triggered, right? Then the skillful thing, and you know that, gosh, you're, and you're, you know enough to know I'm, this is a nine or a 10. It's likely that what you're, and again, everything depends on the relationship, but uh, it can be very skillful sometimes just to uh, take a break or just to say, you know, uh, uh, that, that's hard for me, can we just take a break, okay? When it's in the workable range, maybe we would say like something up to six or seven. And again, it's gonna depend whether I'm with another or with uh, uh, just on my own. But like I think we are suggesting some way of grounding. So again, if it if it's really feels like a lot too much, it is actually helpful to sometimes connect with the ground, physically take a walk, do something. Uh, if it's in the workable range, one way to ground is just to see, can I notice uh, what's going on right now? You know, let me just go inside. Is there anger, right? And sometimes it can be helpful to take a break, right? If it's, if it's easy, it can be useful to take a short break. Like if it happens at work, take a bathroom break, right? or take a break of some kind come back, find a way to come back to yourself. So it's almost like each person will have a repertoire of maybe three or four good ways to, to ground, to come back. So it could be, you know, just feel your body first, feel what's, what's happening in the body. It could be to name it. Okay, let me, this just could just be to say, let me feel that. Okay, let me feel what the emotion is. Or it could be to notice the thoughts. Uh, Again, sometimes it could be just to, if you do loving kindness practice regularly, that can be something which really brings you back to being present. Um, so those are a few. Yeah. Again, if it's, if it's big, you can talk to a friend, think of a teaching, depends on the duration. So a lot of variables. Thanks. Other, could be some very related, that's such a, Crucial question. So it's helpful, yeah, mindfulness just to label this is what's happening, right? Just to, to name it is like that's like a starting point. Anything else could be related to the first arrow, the second arrow, how to how to even how to design a half day or a day in the next few few days. Or anyone have a story of being with darkness and discovering light. Mm. I bet you there are a hundred stories here. <laughs> I know. Mm. Yeah.
Okay, then you, you'll be next, okay. Hi. A little, little closer. Patience. Patience. Life has been white water rafting a trip. Yeah. For the personality I wear at this time. Yeah. Restful pools of chilling depth, relaxing just long enough to dump me over another fall through an uncontrollable attachment. I cling to my raft for yeah. an identity that holds me up. Yeah. Nothing works. No goal but to get through. Hands slipping on my ego paddle, I push away from a huge rock rearing up in my path, yeah. only to slam backwards into a small one. Yeah. Dazed, I recall, I am not alone in this raft. The guide says, relax, keep your oars in the water, look downstream, and simply steer. Yeah. So that, that applies to the first question also. Basically, watch for tendencies to freak out. Look at the water and simply steer. Easier said than done, right? Yeah. Um, up front? Well, thank you. Thank Hi. you very much. very helpful to I tend to think in the extremes yeah so uh, as we approach 2020 you know maybe too much light or too dark we can't see very clearly yeah so and, and uh, at the beginning of your talk I tend to be argumentative when you say the earth is still I say no the earth is not still so I you know I have that rushing in of argumentation is that you know the earth is spinning and is also you know yeah. um, orbiting and then I say well the, the reason I'm here is not to to cause trouble and I better put down my perception and just listen to what you have to say yeah and uh, that you know not to cause extra trouble for myself. It's like knowing that, you know, that pain or that that heat is rising. It's stop, pause, and think yeah. about what, why I am here and yeah. give myself a minute and say, oh, okay, I'm being argumentative. Yeah. So I guess, you know, before I pick up more troubles to make it even more uncomfortable, um, yeah, so thank you very much. You're welcome. And uh, yeah, it's like the uh, being arg argumentative can be a great uh, quality, right? And you know, what you're pointing to, I, I wasn't 100% precise. I said the earth is still. Maybe I'll, next time I talk about this, I'll remember your comment. <laughs> and say, well, there are aspects of stillness, of course, the earth is still spinning. 
Right, but uh, I think what I'm hearing you also say is that uh, it's like sometimes, you know, sometimes our, a lot of our positive qualities can be connected with habits which can limit us. Is that something like that? Like, you know, because uh, um, I have some background for being argumentative myself. <laughs> anyway, but it's, but it's, uh, but then can I, can I listen and can I, can I listen more deeply? And again, what we learn in the meditation is to not get too consumed by the thinking and listen to, to what's more deep, right? And that's, uh, that's what's being pointed to. And yeah, so thank you. But I, I really was hearing you uh, just reflect, just reflect, it was very nice, just reflect on your own to take your experience and be willing to share it and show how it led to a kind of some degree of letting go and opening, right? That's very, thank you. Because I, th- I think almost everyone can relate to that. Yeah, thanks. Maybe one more, we have time for one more, I think. Could be a question, a comment, a little story. Okay, maybe last one. Oh, okay. Okay, hi. I'm just in, um, I, I'm remembering something that uh, just happened recently. Um, and I was reminded of it by this talk, and a friend of mine uh, drew a piece of paper of a saying, he was giving it perhaps, and it said, embrace silence. Embrace? I think that that's the whole thing Embrace what? Embrace silence. Embrace silence, yeah. Silence. Um, so that's been kind of like going through my head over and over again as you speak, embrace silence. And that includes... Um, when I don't know, and I, do, I hate not knowing things, yeah. um, but to embrace that, to embrace the not knowing, the silence, when I reach out for the answers and they're not there, mm-hmm. to embrace that, mm-hmm. because so often I, I like I like knowing, you know, I like knowing very much, and sometimes I I can't, yeah, and I have to accept that. Embrace silence. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's. Um, can guide us really that that understanding not so easy in the moment when we want to know right I, I, I remembered uh, a quote I think from a, a philosopher who I studied named Adorno and I used to say this to my teachers it used to irritate them it was he said that uh, clarity is only one moment of the process of inquiry <laughs> Meaning there are a lot of times when we don't know, we're not clear, and my, I think my teachers didn't like that. But. <laughs> okay. okay, I think we we do have time for one one more. Yeah. Having had spouses of severe pain, 
almost almost entirely about impatience with the pain. Yeah. And I was wondering how to grapple with that. That it's not just, oh, I'm in pain, yeah. but also, why am I experiencing this again? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the question. It's and it, it could really be generalized to other kinds of recurrent pain, whether it's emotional pain or other kinds. And what it's really pointing to is not e- first of all, it's not easy and a challenge. But one, you know, we can. You know, I was mentioning some initial ways to work with the first arrow, but um, we can. We can sometimes be in the body, feel what's there. Another way is to, I think you're pointing to this, is to identify uh, uh, a certain kind of belief or narrative that is actually very instrumental for a lot of our suffering, right? Often the narratives have words in them like always, and never, uh, or have some sense of uh, uh, no way out, negative stories about the future. And so one way of practicing is actually, it's not easy, is to, but I think it came to mind when you told your story, is to see if you can identify that narrative early on. And it's going to be pretty similar with the situation, right? And this actually can be general. This is what we do a lot when I do the work on transforming the judgmental mind. We try to look at what we call limiting beliefs, which are recurrent, right? And somehow to look at the belief or narrative or uh, uh, about the pain, such as this will always be this way, or could fill out a lot of them like that. And to, um, we can use processes of inquiry, and there are different ways of doing this. Use processes of inquiry to help us be less fixated on those beliefs. You know, and they're going to, that, this will come up in all sorts of areas of our lives. And uh, probably don't have time to mention them, but we can, we can sometimes just ask, uh, do, am I attached to that view? Another way is to uh, uh, really be careful with words like always, never, and that, that generalize in that way. Be careful with generalizations. Uh, and there are some other techniques that we can use. Uh, you know, I have a colleague who works a lot with uh, the work of Byron Katie has some very interesting tools to cut through rigidly held beliefs, you know, which, and there's so, so there are a lot of tools out there, but that's, that's where my mind goes with that. Yeah, I hope that's helpful. So it's really to find the mind when there's some pain, kind of going to a belief and repeating it over and over again. When that's happening, we can identify it, try not to repeat it, and then we can do some inquiry that will can tend to deconstruct it. Sometimes we do, again, a lot of different ways to do that. Sometimes we try to touch the underlying emotion. Yeah. This could be done in many, many ways. I think James Baldwin once said, the reason, you know, the reason that people hate so much is that they may realize that once their hate is gone, they have to deal with a certain kind of pain. 
And so the beliefs can really cover, cover over the pain. When we touch the pain, it can transform it. I'd be touching the first arrows. That's anyway, a lot of different ways. Okay. Good. Thank you. So we'll, we'll close now. And just to, again, bring to mind what may have been helpful from the evening and any intentions coming from the evening. invite the fruits of our evening to be offered for our own benefit, for the benefit of those in our lives, especially at this holiday time. And then more broadly, may we offer the benefits of our evening, whatever they are, to all beings at this time, without exception, and knowing that we are a part ourselves of all beings. dark time and enjoy the coming of the light. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.